Our Untangled Minds by CUSM is for informational purposes only and does not constitute professional medical or psychological advice, diagnosis, and or treatment. Please make sure if you do have any questions or concerns that are medical or psychological in nature that you seek out a physician or qualified mental health provider for further help. Furthermore, the information, viewpoints, or opinions expressed in this podcast are solely the views of the individuals that are involved. They do not represent absolute fact and are subject to change at any point in time. CUSM does not accept responsibility for these views. Lastly, the names and details of any medical stories shared in this episode have been edited for privacy. Hi, uh, welcome to the Our Untangled Minds podcast on the episode on chronic illness and impairment among medical students. Uh, Today, we're going to be getting the perspectives and backgrounds of a couple students um, with different uh, disabilities, impairments, or diseases um, with the goal of really... um, promoting diversity in medicine and talking about these unique backgrounds and really how it changes expectations in medicine and the different challenges that uh, medical students face with uh, chronic disease or impairment. So um, we have uh, four people here today who are going to be talking about their experience and we're going to go around and introduce ourselves, you know, tell you a little bit about um, our diseases and impairments, and maybe when those uh, started. So I guess I can go and start first. So hi, my name's Dean Midori. Uh, I'm a first-year medical student here, and uh, I was diagnosed with epilepsy in uh, 2012, um, and I also have uh, autosomal-dominant polycystic kidney disease. Um, I was born with that one, but I found out again in about 2016 that I had that. Um, so that's me. Yeah, I'm Noah Anderson. I'm a second-year medical student here at CUSM. Uh, in November 2019, I was in a dirt bike accident that uh, kind of ripped up my brachial plexus, um, a volst T1, C8, and C7, and then ruptured C6 and part of C5. Uh, so lost most of the uh, function of my right arm. Um, got a little abduction back with some nerve reconstructive surgeries. Um, but, uh, yeah, that's about it. So moving forward, thinking about maybe amputation. Um, and I'm actually excited for that option because it's hopefully will be just this last, uh, piece to kind of put it hopefully behind me and start just moving forward with things. Um, I also like broke my leg and stuff in the surgeries or in the accident. Um, so there's just been a lot of things that kind of kind of been road bumps um, the past few years, but um, I'm excited to keep moving forward with it. Hard to follow that one. Uh, my <laughs> name is Kyle Wright. I'm a first year medical student, and uh, I had a pretty life changing uh, concussion in high school that left me with a very different living situation for about five years. Um, even ten years out, there's still some uh, remnants of that, and uh, yeah. I can hand it off to Bijou. Hi, my name is Bijou Lei. I also go by Tiffany. And I'm a first-year medical student as well. And I am a type 1 diabetic. I was diagnosed when I was 12, so I've been living with it for about 10 years now. And it's just as difficult. And we'll talk a little bit about that later. Great. Well, thank you all for introducing yourself and telling a little bit about your backstories. So I think just kind of getting into it, uh, I have a couple questions, but, you know, we're going to kind of go free form and talk about, you know, the way the conversation goes. But 
starting off, you know, obviously medical school is just a lot of studying and going, you know, into this, you're going to study your disease. So my first question is, um, has studying your own disease influenced you or changed your perception of how um, you've kind of thought about, you know, what happened to you or your disease? And um, so I guess it's kind of my first question, if anyone has a perspective on that. Uh, yeah, it's, um, because it's happened to me, I dive into even kind of deeper stuff, right? Read papers on these certain things. So it's, it's made learning and remembering, um, the things that are involved with my injury, um, easier. Um, for example, when you're in musculoskeletal system, learning the brachial plexus, I mean, I, I got it right away and I still remember it to this day because it was me and it was, what happened with me and it allowed me to um, better understand what my physicians were talking about and be able to converse with them and um, have a better clue about what was going on with me and what happened to me and what's going to um, happen going forward. I've always been in the sports as well. So uh, that kind of, that combined with this injury made me interested in ortho. I don't think it's something I'll go into, but it's definitely something that uh, uh, is very interesting what kind of specialties are you into given you know kind of your personal relationship with you know this injury that's a big one um that's probably been maybe the toughest thing that i've had to deal with in the past two and a half years is um having to come to like terms with the fact that i'm not going to be able to do a lot of the things that i saw myself doing with the rest of my life i was very very passionate about going into surgery um i, I had some awesome opportunities to um, work in the uh, trauma surgery department as well as a pediatric surgery department at UCLA. I was very lucky. I feel like, I still feel like there's nothing like being in an OR, um, kind of like being in space. Like it's, it's super unique and I think it's a huge privilege to be able to literally open up bodies and, and make the change right there. Like I think that's the awesome part about surgery is we got to figure out what's going on. And then once we do know what's going on, study that and then go fix it directly. Giving meds and treatment plans is awesome. But to me, at least there's something um, specifically unique about hands-on clearing a, thromb a thrombotic event or fixing a spleen, whatever it is. Uh, so that being said, I, I was very into surgery. Um, and so that's kind of been the tough part is kind of having to shift what I thought was going to fulfill me in life. Um, I saw surgery as a, this pinnacle of a, a career that would give me satisfaction. Kind of having to shift that and decide, realize and accept that that's no longer possible with, uh, with one arm, even though some people are like, oh, anything's possible. I don't, sometimes it's better to come to terms with that than just kind of having blind hope. I mean, I hear that when people say that to you, did they ever like go specifically into like the possibility of robotic prosthetics or something like that? I mean, I know that there is development in that area. Uh, like, what are your opinions on that? Yeah, I mean, I love the idea of prosthesis, uh, but uh, the the issue with me is that I don't have the nerve function. If it was something like like a clean amputation, like in a, a different type of trauma where you're just cutting up like the arm got clean severed. And you still have the nerves attached to the to the spinal cord. Yeah, you can definitely rewire that stuff, and 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 do some cool things with robotics. And obviously, it it's a 
um, getting better and better as as we learn more and more. Um, but the issue is me with avulsion, especially where the nerve is literally ripped off the spinal cord. There's there's no helping that. Um, and so I don't have since I don't have a nerve function, there's not really much of an option for a functional prosthesis. Once I do once I do get amputated, which will probably be mid humeral, um, I could get a prosthesis, but it would be mostly aesthetic. Um, and to me, one of the biggest reasons I just I want to get amputated is just I tell people it's like taking a ten pound dumbbell and attaching it to your shoulder and carrying that around all day. Um, and so I kind of just want to be free from that. It's a it's a burden that affects everything. Um, and so personally, I, I don't think I, I will um, want to go with the prosthesis. Um, but maybe down the line, I mean, just a, what was it last month? They, two people on the same day from Germany and I think Australia came out with the first uh, um, people that got stem cells implanted and were able to walk again after uh, quadriplegic accidents. Um, so who knows where medicine is going to be in 10, 20 years. Um, but I also don't want to wait 10, 20 years with this with this <laughs> uh, burden attached to me. So um, uh, for me, yeah, I mean, I, I'm not like, against it. If if you have the options, that's awesome. There's a thing called, there's a company called Myomo um, where they, let's say that I did have like maybe one or two uh, out of five strength in maybe my bicep or my forearm or like uh, my tricep, radial nerve, muscular tennis, whatever it may be. Um, they can put sensors over over uh, those specific muscles. And even if I was only able to move it a little bit, uh, they can, te- they can, the, the machine can sense that movement trying to get things going and then it can amplify it. And it's kind of an exoskeleton that goes around your whole arm. So let's say I had one out of five, two out of five bicep flexion. I have this exoskeleton on my arm. I'm trying to do it. It senses that and then it amplifies it into certain, uh, into that same movement. And you can even like combine that with maybe a wrist flexion. So if I'm trying to pick up something, I can uh, bicep flex and wrist flex or something like that. So that's also an awesome, awesome, awesome option um, for other people, uh, maybe in my situation or whatever it may be. Um, mine was a traumatic brachial plexus injury, but I'm sure you guys um, all know about herbs palsy, a, a birth brachial plexus injury. Um, they're usually not quite as severe, maybe um, ruptures that can be fixed or down the line, maybe get some strength back and over long term. So that might be an option, cool option for them. Um, just unfortunately, it's, it's not really an option for me. Um, so I guess a question I had, you know, that's kind of come from, you know, talking about this. And Bijou, maybe you can talk a little bit about this too, is that, so I feel like for both of you, um, part of your conditions are, they're, they're visible to the public. So, you know, obviously people can, you know, see your arm and kind of, you know, make some, um, they have their own perception of it in Bijou, you know, they can see your, your blood glucose monitor, you know, if it's on your arm, do you have any, I guess, thoughts about like how that might, you know, make you viewed as a physician or how, you know, you might have to deal with that in the future? Uh, well, I want to go into endocrinology and I'm going back and forth between, you know, treating the adult population versus pediatric population. And when I was first diagnosed, I hid it all. I actually only wore the insulin pump. I didn't have the continuous glucose monitor. Uh, I would only wear it on my abdomen where no one can see it. And I think it's really, um, I don't think that my patients would judge me for wearing the glucose monitor or 
the instant pump out proudly because I think it's a point of pride for me to finally come to terms like, okay, this is what I have. But uh, in the public, people will think, oh, like, do you have cancer? Say, like, oh, is that they're saying a nicotine patch? It's like, no. And then I'll, I want to explain it. I want to always try to educate people because um, there are, you know, um, a couple million people in the U.S. who have type 1 diabetes. So it's not uncommon. I'm sure, um, you know, at least one person or, you know, um, two people away, you know. Um, but I think it will uh, serve as a confidence booster, at least for the children who uh, have type 1 diabetes, to see another person wearing it. So. I love that comment. Um, one thing that uh, you said more at the beginning that, I was uh, directly thinking about was the fact that you come to terms with it and you kind of accept it and then you're almost, almost proud of it. Um, and I know at first, and sometimes I still do, I'm still kind of like, don't want to, uh, show it off too much or like allow people to see how, how bad my arm is. If you, if you see it, it's, it's obviously different, very atrophied and a lot of scars and all that. Um, so, Especially initially, I would I would wear my sling that kind of just looks like I have a broken arm, um, and then I would ha- I have this little I had this little casting that keep my uh, wrists in a neutral um, position for a long time. And I would kind of wear that just so uh, I kind of looked just like a guy with a broken arm at going out uh, wherever I was going. Um, but as I've uh, as I've become more uh, as I've realized more, like this is me. This is I'm not gonna be able to change it, and um, might as well go go through with it. Um, I've been wearing different slings that kind of make it more obvious about uh, my condition, and uh, um, I'm okay with that. And I'm actually excited to um, to have this amputation done, just because I won't I won't get questions anymore about uh, what happened. Because uh, 95% of the time, someone asks me, "Oh, how'd you break your arm?" or "What happened to your arm?" and I I sometimes just say dirt bike. I usually just say, "Oh, dirt bike accident." And usually, if it's just a small interaction, it doesn't really go farther from there. And I don't need to be um, kind of giving them that shock value because that's ninety nine percent of the time. It's like, "Oh, how, what'd you do? Your like, arm? Oh, dirt bike accident? Oh, like when are you gonna get out of this thing?" I'm like, "Never." And they're like, "Oh," and then they kind of get quiet. They get a little sad or ashamed or embarrassed. They don't. They they feel bad for me, and that that makes it weird because I don't I don't need them to feel bad and. Um, but I understand where they're coming from. Um, so that's one reason I'm excited for the amputation. Um, and then going back to, um, how it'll affect me as a physician. Um, no, I think I'm also excited just to, uh, show people that you can do it. Like, and, uh, um, that I'm functional and, um, I'm getting by and I'm, my brain's for sure fine, <laughs> and uh, I think that's the most powerful tool. Um, and so that uh, I actually read a really cool book last year about um, a doctor who had cerebral palsy, um, and he he uh, ended up doing pediatrics and getting through with all that. And it was pretty cool how uh, he learned to become confident in that and use it as a as a tool to. Um, get close with his, his pediatric patients and make them feel comfortable. And he always wore like Superman or um, superhero shirts and scrubs and all that and just allowed him to have a better connection and kind of make the gap between, you know, this, this old doctor and this kid who's, who's um, 
struggling in, at the most vulnerable times of their lives um, and allowing them to just feel, uh, again, comfortable. Um, another uh, funny story is that uh, I go hiking a lot, especially when I was in Hawaii. We were doing a bunch of hikes. Uh, and second or third hike, it was becoming so, so funny. I was, I made a like over under bet with one of my friends. I was like, how many people are going to comment on my arm and how I'm doing this hike? And everyone was like, wow, I can barely get by on this hike with two arms. Like, and this guy's doing this one arm. And it was like <laughs> over under for 10 for one hike. Like how many are we going to get? Um, but, and eventually like that used to maybe bother me a little bit. And now it's like, I don't even, I don't even really recognize it. So, uh, uh, just come to terms with it. And, uh, um, and it can even be, it can even be a powerful, uh, connection that you have with, with patients or with other people of your, uh, similar situations. And I, I think coming to terms with like your own condition and your thing is like, really big theme that I feel like everyone who's kind of in this situation has to go with Kyle. Is there any, like, do you have any experience with like you having to come to terms with anything or? Yeah. Well, I, you know, I, actually I, I wanted to jump back to your original question, which is like, how is like learning about your condition, like change things for you? And like, for me, I mean, what I think is interesting is how we kind of uh, evolve or become a little bit more um, capable as researchers, as we've gone through our academic careers so far. And when this happened to me in high school, it was a WebMD search and then kind of whatever blog posts you could find on the internet about it. Um, now it's like what's on PubMed and you can actually see like the research or you look up on UpToDate, which is like WebMD, but for doctors. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. you know, what's kind of jarring for me is just that you, they don't know really what the problem is or how to fix the problem still in like 2022, like you get a severe head injury there's uh, swelling and then you know after that it's kind of a big question mark and so the treatment is kind of wait and see and hopefully it gets better but if there's no brain bleed there's not a whole lot to do and that can be very frustrating to probably for a physician to tell a you know a patient but also as a patient it's like what do you mean there's nothing we can do oh for sure it's like there's no like you don't know you're supposed to know things and that's something that's really challenging and um, even just like migraines in general separate from head injuries there's hypotheses for the mechanisms, but it's not even really nailed down specifically what's causing the aura versus the pain or all of the other weird neurosymptoms that, you know, come up. And um, it was actually like two blocks ago that, you know, I was fine for about 10 years. Um, things gradually got better after about five years. Um, but I got another concussion in med school. And that was very scary because, uh, the, the symptoms did not go away for um, a good two weeks. And it was getting worse as, you know, the swelling increases before it decreases. And, um, you know, I got an MRI of the brain and uh, it came back abnormal, which is not what you want to hear. And, you know, as a medical student, I know enough and have enough neuroticism to really make a big deal out of potentially nothing. So, you know, they hand you back the results, you know, like... Like, it's like in some coded language, like nobody could understand for you to hand back to your doctor. And I don't think anybody really realizes, but like when you give a patient, uh, you know, the MRI results, they can go onto a computer and try to figure out like what the impression means. And I'm sitting there going, 
this can either mean I'm going to die in like a week, or it could just be nothing. It could be completely benign. It could be uh, just a congenital anomaly, just an anatomical difference. And so, uh, you know, I I actually asked um, just a couple of doctors um, that I do know who are not neurosurgeons, but I I asked like, you know, what do you think of this? And they're like, this is serious. Like, you, you could die. Like you, you need to talk to a neurosurgeon. And, uh, yeah, so I sat with that for about a week, uh, really wondering, like, it, it's hard to like motivate yourself to study and like do normal things and just be a human when you're like, like, how serious is this really? Like, you know, I'm like checking in with people on a daily basis. Like, you know, you still doing okay. Like, you know, you're, you don't need to go to hospital. And, um, you know, thank God, like I, I did get a neurosurge consult, um, a couple of days later. And, um, yeah, the the surgeon was just like, you know, uh, this this little thing that we're seeing on the MRI, it's 2.5 centimeters, uh, totally fine. You know, if it was like six centimeters, you'd be dead. But like, you know, 2.5 is nothing. Um, <laughs> and, you know, it's, it's, it's just hard to think like as a person, it's like, okay, that's a difference of like a couple centimeters. That's life and death. Mm-hmm. And to know that you, uh, you're, you're really right on the cusp, you know, it's, it's, it's a weird thing to hear that, you know, and being 25, it's like before this, I've never really questioned my like mortality or life and i guess you gain like new appreciations after you go through an experience like that um you know to be honest a couple weeks later you know new block new stresses you know that uh acuity kind of fades out of your mind and things that you once took for granted you again take for granted but i guess that's just part of the human condition because you can't constantly have your morality like in the forefront of your mind otherwise you would never do anything you know what i mean Mm -hmm. um so yeah you know it's it's uh, it's definitely an eye-opening experience being a med student, learning about your condition, just understanding, like, especially from like the neurology perspective. Like, I mean, when you were saying earlier about like, you know, you have this uh, brachial plexus injury, but at least you can think. Like, it's really frightening to be a medical student and you can't think. Um, so yeah, head injuries are just very different. I think something that you said that made me realize something that I forgot that I even did was. When I, um, when my doctors were starting to think that I had kidney disease, they sent me to get an ultrasound to get the, um, you know, to try to look for the cyst. And I actually got those images back before my doctor even like contacted me. And I was like a pre-med at the time. And I was like, I'm a pre-med. I can, I can read an ultrasound. So I look at the ultrasound and I'm like, hmm, I'm comparing it to Google. And I'm like, these look great. My, I'm, I think I'm really healthy. And then I got the call from my doctor and she was like, Hey Dean. Um, so the ultrasounds look great. And I was like, oh, that's good. And she went, oh, wait, never mind. No, that they don't look great. They, it's, it's not great. And I was like, oh, uh, whoops. <laughs> All right. But I was, you know, kind of same as you. I was like, I can, I can look at these, I can look at these results on my own. And I couldn't, I, I diagnosed myself as healthy. Um, I guess I want to throw back that original question to you because, you know, on Kahoot, he puts his name as PKD and he's very proud and he always <laughs> just comes out with it. But now like, you know, actually learning about the disease and people now learning, you know, what you have to deal with sometimes. Um, how does that affect you? And how, what do you think about it? So I think something that Noah was kind of talking about earlier was like, I never want other people to feel like sad for my, my condition, you know? And so one thing I always do when I tell people is it's like, if you, if you've seen me tell someone about my disease, I, I do it the same way every time it's go, Oh, you're like, I have kidney disease. But don't worry, it's hip, cool, relaxed kidney disease. And then they're just like, they don't really know how to react to that. So they're like, oh, okay, like, great, perfect. Um, 
And so I kind of like doing that just because I feel like helping other people to be like, you know, kind of okay with it and then open to it, especially in medical school. Then they can kind of just like, people all the time will come up to me and be like, Dean, I have a question about this, you know, and I'm like, perfect, let's go through it. Um, and so learning about it, something actually really cool happened in renal where, um, so we were learning about polycystic disease right now. And my whole life, I was like, this is a chronic disease. It's going to take a long time and it's like a slow progression. I was reading through the boards and beyond slides, and it was like, just so you know, polycystic kidney disease is a high rate of very aneurysm, which is like an acute cause of sudden death. And I went, whoa, I never knew that. I was like, I had never even imagined that there was a way to die acutely. And so I was just kind of sitting there, and then I realized, I was like, this is one line on one boards and beyond slide that just like hit me like a truck. And I was like, Every single line in Boards and Beyond does that for someone else, you know, someone who has a different condition. You can read something like, oh, this other condition has a high rate of, you know, diverticulitis. And like, you're a medical student, so it's like, you're just trying to get it in, memorize it. But for someone else, it's like, that could hit them and they can just like, whoa. Yeah, I I totally relate to that. Like, uh, just as like an empathy exercise, like a lot of the conditions that we learn about, I feel nothing. It's an intellectual activity. It's like, I need, I know that I need to know this information. I know vaguely this will help another person and it will mean something to them. But I feel like until you're like looking something up for yourself and you realize that it could mean your life or death, uh, it hits very differently. And I feel like if you approach other topics with that same kind of mindset that that could mean life or death for someone else, uh, definitely uh, feels different and maybe a little bit more meaningful when you're going through your just day-to-day, you know, you're on the grind, you're just trying to pack as much info as you can into your brain. Yeah, I love that point you guys uh, just brought up because that's what I tell people um, when they're like, oh, this this I don't like. I, my parents are, are pretty religious and they, a lot of their uh, friends and family for, from church would come and say, oh, it all works together for, for good. You're going to come out this, it's going to come out better. And um or, or what doesn't kill you makes you stronger, that one too. And it's like, I, I 100% do not agree with those statements. It's like, uh, I am, uh, in a lot of ways not stronger. Um, maybe in some ways stronger. Um, and one of the ways that I am stronger, uh, is, is in that, uh, empathy, uh, uh, area that you, you guys were mentioning. And it's pretty cool because, uh, I think I would have been a good doctor. I was still, um, right on the cusp, uh, I was, in the application cycle while the accident happened. And I think I would have been a good doctor, decent empathy and all that uh, without this going on. Um, but when you sit, uh, I tell, this is, this is my main thing that I say, when you sit five weeks in a hospital bed, um, and even with I had, I know, six, seven, eight different uh, doctors and surgeons uh, on my, uh, rotating on me, um, and they would come and see you and, go on their rounds five, ten minutes a day, and it was cool, and they were they were very empathetic, and they were nice, and we had some cool conversations for five to ten minutes. You add that up, maybe an hour out of your day, and then maybe you get a couple visitors, there's a couple hours, 20, 21, 22 hours, you're sitting in that hospital bed on your own, um, and there's a lot of thoughts that go on, and there's, uh, it's, 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 it's something that you can't truly understand unless you've been there. Um, and same with a lot of these things with any of our conditions. It's it's something you can't understand if if you uh, if you haven't been there. And so I think uh, 
it's given me a greater appreciation for that. Um, to know that uh, even though I've gone through something um, tough, uh, I'm never going to be uh, have the have the uh, perspective that uh, Dean has or Tiffany has or Kyle has. Um, but I can have, but because of that, I can know that uh, I should have greater empathy because I can't I can't understand it. Um, and just like you're saying, that's everyone, um, just with a different different. Uh, diagnosis disease um, and they're all in the worst moments of their lives when they, they come to see you at the hospital um, and and uh, when you've when you've been on that side of of of, uh, uh, of medicine um, it really allows you to have um, I think a lot higher empathy for them so that is one way that um, I think I've grown uh, because of my because of my uh, injury um, so I think something that I kind of thought of when you were talking about that mm-hmm. is a question I have for a lot of people who have you know chronic impairment, which is, in like the process of getting to medical school or in application processes, I feel at least personally that there's a large emphasis on if you're going to talk about this, talking about how you defeated it, how you overcome it, and the reality is is that these are chronic conditions and they're something that like that you have to live with for the rest of your life. And so I just was kind of wondering if you have any perspective on that, on like if you've ever felt, you know, that you had to kind of portray it as like, oh, this is how I defeated it and overcame it, when in reality it's something that you kind of just live with. I definitely did that. Yeah, I was like, I started, I was like, oh, I was diagnosed when I was 12, and they told me at the hospital, oh, you can be an endocrinologist if you want to. I was like, heck no. I want to be a pilot because you told me I can't be a pilot, right? Um, and then, you know, I did diabetes from everyone. And then it kind of was a story of, you know, going uphill, you know, I met other people who were diabetic, I joined some organizations, and I saw all these children with type 1 diabetes. I almost, I had tears in my eyes. Oh my gosh, I've never seen this many people with the same condition I have. So I do feel that for my condition, at least, there is like an uphill. But at the same time, there's so many concerns that I have that at some point it, might come crashing down, you know. Um, again, chronic renal failure, like 20 to 40% of type 1 diabetics get that. And Dean and I joke that we'll be on dialysis together. Um, but yeah, I think just having to, almost being forced to turn it into a positive thing, at least in the applications, was a big part. Um, but how about you, Kyle? Uh, yeah, I, you know, I, I actually asked some counselors about this, like the pre-med advisors, um, I, there's podcasts, pre-med podcasts that I listen to, like even books that I read about after applying. And a lot of the advice that's out there is pretty much don't talk about this unless there's no way to communicate why you want to go into medicine without talking about that, you know, condition that you deal with. And for me, that was definitely the case. I mean, if I, if I could hide it, I would because, I mean, different from other conditions, if you have a brain problem, and it's affecting your ability to study, the number one question that people are going to have is like, is this really going to impact your ability to keep up with the rigors of this program? And so I don't want to have that conversation or even have that be a question in anyone's mind. But for me, it was something that the only reason, like I'm a career changer. I was never even thinking about going into medicine. Um, I, you know, I had this injury in high school. And, um, I, I withdrew from my high school. I, I couldn't even go back. I was on home study for like several months and then had to do like this alternative uh, program virtually just to 
kind of get through and get my credits and just graduate and move on with life. And uh, for me, I was just thinking at the time, like, you know, I got to put one foot in front of the other. Like, what's what's the best move? And for me, it was like, if I could get an office job, I could at least control my environment and maybe like have like reduced sound, maybe reduced brightness and just kind of work at like whatever hours I need to and just have like more flexibility. So I thought like accounting, finance, economics, that kind of thing would kind of put me in that right direction. And then, um, you know, thankfully, things just got better over time. And my appetite for just ambition kind of grew. And it wasn't until like, I I felt like I was kind of over the hump, like I I had like a good handle on it, like I could handle like a a normal ish life that, um, you know, I had a private, private equity internship. And I just thought like, you know, this is this is cool. But I kind of feel like I've kind of abandoned my people in a sense like i feel like i was given like a second chance to like live a normal life and i was like what am i going to do with this am i just going to try to like make as much money as i can and just kind of go about my life and i don't know be comfortable yeah like am i trying to maximize my comfort you know and i just felt like kind of selfish so i thought you know just existentially what would be meaningful is to just go back and help other people who are dealing with this chronic condition whatever it may be i'm not even sure if it needs to be like head injury related so uh, because of that, yeah, that like heavily influenced my, my path to medicine. So I, I had to talk about that. But uh, what Bijou said, absolutely. It, it had to be framed in a way that like I overcame this. Like I no longer have these chronic headaches, which is honestly kind of a lie. The only thing about it is the frequency has gone down dramatically over time, which is, you know, something that's pretty common in people who have like these massive head injuries. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I'm curious about your guys' thoughts, too. Is it something that you feel like you can talk about? Uh, no, it's definitely something I think I can talk about. Um, it's interesting how, how it's kind of, I've, uh, affected my interactions, especially here at clinical skills. Um, I get a lot of, uh, oh, we'll, we'll help you do this or we'll do this. Uh, like they kind of, they kind of assume a little bit and, no shots to anyone here, but they kind of assume that, oh, I can't do it this way or I can't do it the normal way and I need help or a handicap or some way. Um, whereas I would rather let let them let me try. And if I fail, I will ask, ask for a different way or ask for help. Um, but I'd rather kind of be uh, just treated as normally as possible going forward. And then I'm, I'm good at asking for, for help when I need it. Um, but I don't want it just, um, always, always try to make it easier for me because, um, I don't know, I'm proud in that way. Um, uh, bringing it back though to if, if we can defeat it, um, or if it's, uh, like you get past it, I, I don't think, but for me, um, you're saying you still have your headaches, something you're going to be dealing with your whole, both of you are going to be, you're going to be dealing with your whole lives. Um, and you can de- it's definitely an uphill and maybe plateaus at a certain point where you're kind of used to the routine. You're used to what you can and can't do, what you need help with, um, what's going to be tough going forward, what, how to, how to adapt, whatever it may be. Um, but, uh, we're never gonna, we're never gonna defeat it. It's always, it's always gonna affect our lives. You're always gonna have to, your mom to your glucose. Um, it's always gonna be the back of your mind with, Procedure is going to come back, or um, uh, I think you guys were talking about earlier about the size of your 
Kinesia. Yeah. What's normal and what you need, how you need to monitor that. You need to monitor, uh, I don't know, maybe your CSF volume or, uh, bleeding or whatever it may be, um, going forward. Um, and I'm, I'm always going to be on certain meds for controlling the pain, um, and just not be able to do things. You know, it's hard for me to open jars or, uh, just, just the random things you don't really think of, um, that, always are going to be there um and so uh i don't think we're ever gonna we're definitely able to move forward and we can become stronger people because of it um but i don't think it's a it's a really a black and white of oh i've defeated my injury um because uh we never will i'm never going to get my arm back and Never gonna get, I don't know, your, your beta cells back <laughs> or things like that. So, uh, you yeah. can, you can get better at it, but I don't think it's, it's a, it's a, it's black and white in terms of the I mean, I, I definitely do hear you and I, I agree with what you're saying. Um, but I, I do think there are positive takeaways that you can still have, you know, given that you've come to terms with like, this is my new living situation. Uh, I think one of those, at least for me, is, you know, if I can, convince myself that even with a migraine i need to sit down and study and figure out a way to power through it um it's almost like you know you're you're running with a parachute behind you and then on a good day you take that parachute off you are just so insanely efficient you know what i mean you just you, you absolutely just blow it out of the water those days um you know another another way to look at this is like when i when i do get these crippling migraines um you know that have just come since these head injuries I, I kind of think of them as like an empathy exercise where it's just like you're you're constantly reminded on a daily basis like why you're here, why you're doing the things that you're doing, why you're studying, who you're trying to help. And even some of my early clinical experiences, like I've just realized that I have a very different world outlook than uh, some of the nurses that I was working with and helping. You know, like there's uh, there are patients who would come to the hospital with like severe 10 out of 10 migraines and um, you know, the, the nurses would, um, and these are like nice people. I do not mean to like, you know, say anything bad about these nurses. Like I have huge respect for them, um, but their, their highest concern is like, this is drug seeking behavior. Like they really question the sincerity of these people suffering. And uh, you know, my, my first instinct was like, Oh my God, I'm so sorry that you're dealing with this. Like, this is awful which is just a very different world outlook. How about you, Dean? I know you say like, oh, it's so easy to write a personal statement with these chronic conditions, but yeah, I want to hear your experience. Um, so I think that, honestly, the reason I bring up this question is because we talk about diversity in medicine all the time. You know, it's like such a huge thing, diversity in medicine. It's a big talking point on applications and everything. Um, but then you get to this aspect, you know, chronic disease and, that diversity kind of goes down. It's like, eh, don't really talk about it. Don't, you know, unless you, you know, really overcome it. And it's like, I'm no different. In my application, I was, I really wanted to talk about my kidney disease because it was really influential for how I got here. But again, I framed it like I was a superhero that defeated a genetic condition. I was like, yeah, I have kidney disease. But after my diagnosis, I shadowed in a kidney disease clinic and I did kidney research and I look at my GPA, like, look how great everything is. Like, there was definitely that emphasis on beating it. But that, Diversity that's brought, I mean, even from just listening to like things you guys have talked about today is so important, I think, in medicine because, I mean, I, I talked about this a little bit before.
before the podcast, uh, I had a presentation on diabetes and I had like the treatment section. And my entire presentation was from things Bijou has told me about how she handles her condition and how, you know, some things that like you're not going to find in a Boards and Beyond slide, you know, about like, oh, you know, I actually found that eating this way really helps and I monitor, you know, this way and this is a really good thing. And these different perspectives, I feel like, really help in medicine. And so that's why it kind of makes me sad that there's you know such an emphasis on, like, if you can't make it like you're a superhero that defeated this, then maybe don't talk about it. Well, talking about the diversity you're talking, uh, you were mentioning, um, it's almost the, the dark side, the non-talked-about side, the part where we struggle, that is what gives us the diversity that um, people are looking for. So you're right, it's an oxymoron that we're kind of not it, not supposed to talk about it or whatever it makes us look weaker when in fact those dark sides and the fact that we're still pushing through it and have have uh, learned how to deal with that it's not that it's gone away but we've learned how to deal with it and still be our productive selves like you were saying you, you've learned how to work through your headaches and then when you don't have headaches even 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 more productive and efficient um and for me personally i had already uh, set in my applications, um, even my secondaries, um, be- uh, before my accident. So I only talked about it a little bit in interviews, and even then they sometimes didn't even uh, know the severity of it because, again, I just kind of had the same kind of like a broken arm and sometimes didn't even fully get into it on interviews. Um, but definitely for my residency application, I was going to talk about it. I'm going to talk about the struggles. I'm going to talk about um, what I probably can and can't do a little bit. Um, and at least personally for me, if, if that makes them not want me, then I don't want them, um, in terms of, in terms of those programs. Um, I know my worth and I know that, uh, at least I'm going to be applying for internal medicine that, um, I'll be as hardworking. And, um, I think at, personally, I think as beneficial as anyone there with, with two arms. And so, uh, again, if, if, uh, that makes them, not want me then i think i'm better off somewhere else too so i'm definitely going to talk about both sides of the coin with my own injury and i think that's really great because i mean changing medicine it kind of starts with here and that's it's kind of one of the reasons why i will walk around this school and my second sentence to most people is hey i have kidney disease (laughs) it's just because you know i think it, it really starts here you know with the things that we do and then when we're all old and we're on the application boards and we see someone you know in a similar situation it kind of helps to change the system normalize it Mm -hmm. um so i kind of want to talk about uh your expectations in the hospital is there anything that you're worried about that like you know maybe you need like you know accommodations and you don't know if they'll be there or maybe you um or just kind of like worried about anything is there any aspects of the hospital you know when we go into our m3 and m4 years that you um think that you might want to like have accommodations for or you might want to handle differently than like a normal student i used to do accommodations for testing um and i applied to have them but never used them just as a backup um because if i get low blood sugar i start shaking i can't think clearly and then i need more time but of course i don't want any preferential treatment so i probably won't ask for any accommodations. The only thing I'm concerned about is being able to um, go back to the locker and maybe take some glucose tablets or, you know, lower my insulin as needed if there's long shifts. Um, But not so much personally. How about you, Dean? I don't think... So I think 
with my disease, I mean, it's a little bit different from you guys. I don't actually have that many symptoms, mm-hmm. like, because I'm, I'm kind of young, um, and it, it's kind of progressive. Um, I think the aspect of my disease that currently is the most thing that will need accommodations is because uh, autosomal dominant polycystic kidney disease is autosomal dominant. My entire family has it. And so the difficulty of really dealing with the disease is not that I have to deal with it myself. It's that there's four people in my family currently who have the disease and who, you know, they're old now, so they need help they need to handle it. And so it's kind of like if anything is to happen, if anyone in my family wants, you know, needs to get a kidney transplant, if they need to go to dialysis, it's like I'm really glad that I can be around them because I'm kind of local to my family. But I think that's the accommodation that I would kind of want to have available is, you know, if, if my family's getting kidneys and donating kidneys, they're going to need someone to, to take care of them. And I think that's pretty much the only accommodation that I'm really kind of hoping to have. But obviously, med school life is very, very busy. And, we want, you know, it's kind of hard to tell what those accommodations will be like till we actually get to the hospital. I mean, yeah, that's uh, like you're saying, like kind of world of change. That's something that like. Every med student should get the ability to take time off when they need for family issues or whatever, your own uh, uh, mental health or dealing with uh, a bad low sh- uh, like, uh, blood sugar day. Like There should be just ability to be human and take the day off every once in a while and um, and have no like consequences from that. And um, uh, So, yeah, that's, that's my one point. Um, the two things for me in terms of uh, accommodations that kind of come to mind is uh, one, I hope that I can get a, um, I know the residents have little trolleys that they have the computers on and uh, I like to take notes uh, when I'm in on, on clinical. So I hope to get one of those cause that'll make things cause I, ha- I can't hold my iPad and type. And so um, I've gotten good at clinical skills, at least in patient interviews and just kind of remembering everything when I'm doing the interview. Uh, and not being able to write stuff down. So I think, uh, my one accommodation for that would just be <laughs> a little tray I can carry around with me and have my iPad on. Um, and then two is I guess I'm a tiny bit worried about how, um, residents or nurses or attendings are just going to have to, um, navigate, oh, I'm not going to be able to do this, practice this chest tube or, um, do an IV or, whatever it may be, and kind of just navigating the whole what can I do, what can I not, because it's already been a little weird here with just clinical skills and, and dummies or, or SPs. Um, so we'll see how that goes. I, I really don't know what to expect um, third year, so um, kind of with a lot of things, and I'm sure you guys are very well. Just some things you don't know, you go into it, and you're adaptable, and I think that's something we're probably all pretty good at at this point. Um, so just a little more of that. and. Um, the the longer I deal with this, the better I get at that. So it's just another another uh, chance chance to learn and adapt. Yeah, there's something you said there, Noah, that I I completely agree with, which is um we should have the ability as medical students to just take a week if you need it because something you know you're not feeling well, like there's legitimate reasons why you just cannot go on in the same way that you have been. And I remember that when I was, um, when I had that head injury during a cardio palm, which is like one of the most rigorous blocks, uh, the neuro, <laughs> the neurologist told me, uh, yeah, you know, you might want to think about just 
taking, you know, the rest of the block off and making it up some other time. And that felt completely impossible. It's not that easy. You can't, you can't just make up the block. I mean, when am I going to do that? It's going to throw everything off. There's all the stress associated with that. And there's also some like level of momentum to the learning because if you've been cramming for the last four weeks and then all of a sudden you're just going to postpone the block, well, you pretty much have to start all over again if you're going to perform well for the exam. Uh, the neurosurgeon who I talked to just said outright, yeah, you, you really, I, I understand what medicine's like. like. You can't, you can't just like take time off. So his recommendation was just try to, you know, decrease your activities that are extracurricular, maybe put off the research and the extra things that I know that you're trying to, you know, hustle on the side and just try to focus on not failing this exam. And then, you know, obviously in like board reviews, you can go back and reinforce your learning, make sure there's no holes, cover any gaps that you have. But um, that's something that I found interesting and kind of similar to what Biju was saying about like the testing accommodations. I definitely needed uh, testing accommodations for that exam because my reading speed was just like halved. Um, you know, the the thinking was fine, you know, at a certain point, the memory recall, not a problem, but just, you know, physically moving your eyes, reading the words and having it stick in your head. Um, but I felt this level of neuroticism, which was like, I don't want any unfair treatment. So yes. kind of what I was thinking is like, if I can normally finish an exam in exactly that amount of time, but not have time to go back and review all of my answers, just because I have extra time, I'm not going to go back and um, try to review all of my answers because I just feel like that's kind of unfair. And I don't want that. Like, I, I think hopefully most of us here can resonate with this. It's like, I just want to be normal. Like, that's it. I don't want anything above, nothing below. Just I want to be on par with everyone else. Yeah, you know, as, as far as accommodations in the hospital setting, I think uh, something that's kind of more unique to like headache or head injury and neurological problems is you have to have a lot of discipline to make sure that the rest of your life is exactly optimized so that you can accommodate for these issues. So like having enough hours of sleep can help reduce migraines, headaches, uh, drinking enough water, eating the right foods, eating the right foods spaced out over the course of the day at the right times not having extra, you know, stress that you don't need or having a way to deal with the stress. So there's all these extra things that I feel like you have to have absolutely optimized in order to just kind of be normal and go about your the rest of your life. Yeah, I super resonate. I mean, Bijou obviously probably super understands that. Like I, my whole diet is, is uh, tailored to kidney disease, which is, you know, it's, I don't have high protein. I don't have caffeine. I don't have, you know, potassium in certain forms. And it's just like, I'm always tailoring to try to make this thing better. And so I, I went to the nephrologist recently and he told me like, oh, just, you know, you went down a stage in your kidney volume. And I was like, that's terrific. That's great. He was like, by the way, you have a kidney stone though. And I was like, oh, so it's like, even though you can, you can be trying so hard to like maintain this, this you know, this certain diet and this certain habit, there's always, it's kind of like we were talking about earlier. There's always going to be like a lapse. There's, you always need like time because you're not going to be perfect for the rest of your life. You know, um, but Fiji, do you have any any input on on that? On like, you obviously have to maintain your diet very strictly. Is there any struggles that go along with that? Or? Um, definitely. I I can pretty much. I think there's a lot of misconceptions of what I can and cannot have. Um, so that can be a little bit frustrating. I think some unwanted advice and solicited advice about what you can and cannot do, which I would love to hear from the three of you too. Um, like I can have candy you know i can have juice you know just not a lot of it um i think the biggest challenge with um just managing my blood sugar 
at least now in medical school, is judgment. Probably from other people, like, say, like, oh, yeah, my blood sugar is at 160. And it's like, oh, that's kind of high. Like, for me, my range should be between 80 to 180. Um, and as long as it's in that range, it should be good. And I think just being a patient, you learn about, like, how treatment's changing a lot faster than how we learn in medicine, right? So the basic of what you learn about HbA1c, right? Okay, normal A1c, like, for, like, diabetics is, like, 6 to 7. Um, but that's not really – here's a little fact for you guys. So for type 1 diabetics, it's good to have an A1c around, like, 6 or 7. But if you're spiking up and down like this, it's just the average. You can have still, like, a, like a pretty great A1c – but you're going up and down, and that's just not healthy for you. So I think when I share some of my blood sugar and it's 200, or uh, I was telling you, I was at like 300 a couple of days ago, um, people will be like, whoa, that's crazy. That'll make me a little bit nervous, because I'm like, I think it's a lot more normal than people think. Um, so learning about your disease, I think uh, I would love to talk to my classmates and tell them like, okay, this is, if you face a patient with blood sugar that's 180, it's for, at least for a type one diabetic, that's okay. You know, there's things to manage it. Um, for type two, you know, it's very different. But at least have that empathy that it is very difficult to change your diet. Um, and the surrounding diet, I think when I was twelve, they told me, okay, don't eat rice, don't eat noodles. I'm like, rice is part of my culture. You know, you can't just take out a whole staple in your diet. Um, so I think working around those and figuring out how to eat in ways that I can still manage my glucose but not cut out key components of my like my diet uh, was the most difficult part um because i love thai food i love vietnamese food you know uh, i'm not just going to cut it out completely i think learning to work around that uh, will make me a better physician and be more empathetic to people when i have to help them with diet recommendations i'm not going to say oh don't eat chips don't eat processed foods don't eat out anymore you know um but that's my experience with that so you actually brought something up that I really want to ask all of you, which you talked a little bit about judgment. And so just from like a personal example, one of my biggest pet peeves was I would obviously everybody knows I have kidney disease because I don't stop talking about it, but I'll tell people. And then there was a time in college when like my friends would go out drinking to bars and stuff. And I don't really drink alcohol that much because of the kidney disease. Um, and they wouldn't invite me because they didn't want to be like, oh, we don't want to be the person who destroys Dean's kidneys. So is there any part of your conditions where, like, people kind of make these assumptions for you or try to just, like, assume these things for you that just really bug you? Oh, yeah. Uh, especially, I'm my whole life played, like, every sport there was, and that's, that's like, one of my main loves is just competition in sports. And so um, a lot of times people will kind of, like, assume, oh, like, either can't do it or it's going to be really a struggle um like i was playing i am soccer here at cusm and uh and my athletic sling on and i'm go out on the field warming up and the ref comes up to us he's like you're not playing are you I'm like, yeah yeah i am like he's like oh okay like well, you, you, are you sure with your arm and all that i'm like dude it's paralyzed like i just have to tell him like dude it's paralyzed like no feeling no pain nothing it, it's not affecting anything in that turn like, okay and i think that kind of happens all the time like um, maybe not getting in, invited to certain, I don't know, sports or competitions because they're like, oh, you probably can't do it. Um, 
kind of assuming uh, and no, I, I want to get invited to those things and that's one of the main reasons I try to go to the gym every day and starting to run again um, is just so uh, I can get back to that love of sports and um, almost not prove people wrong but like go out there and, and uh, show, them, show them that it's not as uh, a big of an inhibition as, as people might uh, assume or think. So I have like, I think one big last question, which um, it's kind of going to be, uh, you know, we talked a little bit about how, you know, the things we want in medicine, the things we look for in medicine. If there's any pre-med students, people looking into medicine with, you know, chronic diseases of their own, is there any advice that you would give them about maybe how to handle things or, you know, how to navigate medicine at all? Yeah, something that pops out to me is... Um... I think there's a lot of power in coming to grips and just accepting the fact that maybe this is forever. And I think that that's really not like a defeatist attitude, at least from my experience, because I feel like uh, as soon as I, I mean, for me, I, I had waited about three years um, for my head injury to like my post-concussive syndrome to get better. And uh, at a certain point, I just, you know, maybe this is just life. And that was like the inflection point in my life because I, I looked at myself differently. I just thought, you know, if if this is forever, how do I overcome it? And uh, for me, reading was, uh, it's kind of awkward, but like reading was a, a challenge. Like I went from like being an honor student to like, uh, by the time I like reached the end of a sentence, I forget like how it started. And it was just like a mess to try to read through like homework or anything. Um, so once once I like thought maybe this is forever, I really seriously took it to task and just like started reading like every day very seriously and it was just repetition and just trying that I got to a point where when I did take the GRE uh, later in life to get into a postback program I got like almost 100th percentile on like the verbal because like I, I had just exercised it to that point and for me like that really meant something to me I mean the score itself like to get into a school obviously if you got 100th percentile you overstudy you don't you don't need that okay like it's not it's nothing to brag about actually you wasted your life okay that's just my opinion but uh it, it meant something to me because it's where I started and where I am now so I think I think that's you know motivational and it just if I could you know say anything to somebody who's dealing with a chronic condition um I would just say like think about it over the long term you know are there things you could be doing now that will set you up for success in the future or like types of muscles you can strengthen or just different ways that you can organize your life to you know just set you up for success yeah I love that that gives me a great um jumping point to uh yeah what I want to talk about and I guess my suggestion um I don't know it's not it's it's really basically uh, what Kyle's saying but it's a really interesting dichotomy um, with coming to terms and uh, uh, with with what's happened to you and accepting it, but also uh, not not letting it just just like kind of uh, define you either, and not letting it or or not settling into these boxes that people might assume you should uh, you should sit in because of your injury. Um, I guess. To, to start the the five stages of, of grief are, are real <laughs> uh i guess that's how i want to start talking about this this conversation i might be a little while or a little long-winded but i'll try my best to um, compartmentalize it but 
starting off the first uh, the five stages of grief are real you, first of all you, you deny uh i remember like three days afterwards um because my injury happened up in santa barbara and i was still using at the time and my roommates came up and saw me and uh it was like three days into it my i'm just in the hospital bed just like awake every every few hours just because i'm on so many drugs and stuff and i remember one of the very very few parts that I know about that first week, um, waking up and my friends would be in there and being like, "Don't worry, guys. Like, I'll be back to practice next week," um, and just kind of just not accepting it at all. Um, and then that turns into the other stages of, of grief and depression, um, and kind of having to accept what's going on. Uh, but also, you can't just let that paralyze you uh you can't accept the limitations really that um at least are expected of you there's obviously going to be limitations in this things that you do have to come to terms with kind of like with uh having to deal with not being able to go into surgery but you also have can't just uh mope about it either and uh you have to take on challenges um and so that kind of paralyzed feeling was how i spent the first year year and a half almost feeling sorry for myself of not trying a lot of things of kind of being like, Oh, Oh, I, I'm not going to be able to do anything anymore. And, uh, for some reason I got out of that about a year, year and a half later and was like, okay, this is it. Kind of like Kyle said, this is what I'm dealing with. This is, I'm here for the long term, but I'm not going to um, just sit here like I am right now. I'm going to go head on and start going to the gym and start, uh, trying things that, are going to be tougher than they were before and, and just becoming who I am and becoming a strong version of who I am, becoming the best version of what I, uh, what is possible for me. And, uh, that kind of, kind of culminated in this last summer where, uh, I worked at this boys summer camp, uh, uh, two years ago, the summer before my accident. And it's all boys camp. It's all sports. Uh, you do a lot of, uh, you're, you're active, you're outside all day, you're out on the lake, you're, um, playing sports with the kids, whatever it may be. And I really wanted to go back to this camp this summer and kind of use it as a tool or a, an opportunity to dive into these things that are going to be hard, much harder than they were before and things that maybe uh, I'm not expected to even try anymore. So I went and I became a lifeguard. I swam a bunch so I could pass that class. And then I went out on the lake and became a, a wakeboard instructor and learn how to wakeboard with my one arm and I went out and tried all these sports and was playing sports with the kids, playing with the counselors uh, at night in our time off and just tackling these things that I was oh, for a long time afraid of because I knew I was gonna, not going to be the same person that I was before. I was a good athlete and not, and so I wasn't going to be that same type of athlete just because I couldn't be, but I could still go try those sports and do my best and improve and uh, not just mope about, not just accept that uh one arm makes you this uh crippled non-athletic person um and so it became part of my thing like oh you're getting beat by a cripple right now like uh, <laughs> like, like kind of just uh um accepting it and almost uh using it as like uh motivation to to become better and, um so i guess for my suggestion is try to Try ways, try therapy, and try try things that are 
out of your comfort zone and uh uh but also be okay with like who you are and it's going to take time to accept the things that uh are going to be in your life forever um and so it's i don't know how much of like a suggestion is it but just be aware that there's going to be this um uh black and white between uh accepting what's happened to you but also um trying to become the best person that you can with what's happened to you and so just got to be aware of that um and i don't i don't know how if i was talking to myself at the beginning of this accident what i would exactly say but um try try things um but also uh don't be too hard on yourself at the same time um and it's something that takes practice kind of living on the fence between those two things because it really is a uh, you have to have kind of a leg almost on each side of the fence um, between trying new things, but also knowing that that comes with failure and not getting too down on yourself when you do fail. Because um, uh, at least for me, I'm a very uh, not perfectionist, but I, I like I want to succeed. Um, so you got to you got to learn to balance those two sides. That's awesome. Uh, I like to hear that you're like constantly challenging yourself. Because like you've definitely met your milestones that you've set for yourself. Um, you know, as you may have heard, my pump went off. That's when it malfunctions. Uh, I apologize for that. I know it's like a little bit annoying. It kind of sets Don't me apologize. off. It like sets me off when I hear like high bit high pitched noises or you know, when like oh, yeah. a little golf car is backing up, I hear that noise and oh no. <laughs> but um yeah, I used to be really self-conscious about that. Like, when it would go off in class, it's like, ah, people know, you know? Um, but, you know, I think my advice for people, I guess it's just really cliche and for people in general. Like, don't, you will get to where you want to be at some point. Whatever goal, and it may change, but I I remember, um, I think the doctor told me, like, when I was first writing down all the carbohydrates, okay, 16 for a banana, you know? 13 for milk, I've had to calculate it. And they'll be like, one day you'll just look at a food and know exactly how many carbs are in there. And I like to make it a game. I'm like, oh yeah, that one has... Oh, the worst one to eat is Cinnabons. Don't eat Cinnabons. <laughs> 120 carbs. Um, but I think that's it's like a point of pride. Be proud of yourself. Don't feel that you have to hide yourself because everyone has unique characteristics. Um, but yeah, just really cliche. So, I mean, we talked about it a little bit today about how, you know, each of our backgrounds has really given us a really diverse view on medicine and a different point of view that isn't really here. Um, and for both of my conditions, really, epilepsy and kidney disease, I think something that really helped me was uh, looking for any semblance of a positive defined from the situation. So, for example, the, the one I use most that I tell everyone because I think it's super cute is um, I'll likely be on dialysis one day because my kidney will fail eventually. Um, and dialysis is super hard. And, you know, I've seen it in my family. It, like, drains your personality. It's a really hard thing to go through. And so I'm so excited one day to have a patient in my clinic. Be like, Doctor, I just, I can't. I can't do dialysis. I can't do it. And I'm just going to be like, you know what? I go every Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday. Let's go together. You know? So it's like there's always some type of, you know, new experience, new perspective, new there's something that you can gain from, you know, this 
bad thing. And I think it's important to really kind of look for those things and look for how that maybe it can help you improve the doctor or maybe just help somebody else. Um, and so I think that's my advice is to, you know, no matter what your condition is, find a way that maybe you can help make your life better or help change somebody else's life for the better. Yeah, agreed. I think you can, uh, it's going to, it's going to open up a lot of connections and, uh, ways to, uh, reach out to people that you wouldn't have thought and, uh, definitely better others lives well thank you for having us it's been really cool to hear everyone else's story and just to kind of you know share your experience and hopefully there's other people out there listening who find this useful yeah again i want to thank you guys so much because i mean it's like we talked about it's not easy to just come out in medicine where you're sometimes expected to be perfect and talked about these things that are classically imperfect so i really appreciate you all being here yeah, same. Thank you. Thank for you. Having, Thanks for having us. This. Well, uh, thank you for listening to another episode of the Alan Ingalls Minds podcast. It's going to do it for us. Tune in again. Thanks for listening, everyone. If you have any questions, comments, or episode suggestions, please email us at oumpodcast at cusm.org. That's O-U-M-P-O-D-C-A-S-T at C-U-S-M dot org.